0: All right. Thank you, Brother Vince. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14 is where we will start this morning and we will, uh, by God's grace, hopefully get all the way through verse 22. If You remember First Corinthians written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. Uh, The church at Corinth had lots of problems, lots of issues. They had Written to Paul, Paul helped plant them. He spent a year and a half with them, kind of guiding them, helping them to grow, to mature in the Lord. And then he starts getting these reports back from people that they're falling, that they're stumbling, that they're doing all sorts of nonsensical things. Paul has—they write a letter to Paul asking a bunch of questions, and largely First Corinthians is Paul answering some of those questions. We don't have the first letter; we don't know what was written there, and so uh, we have to kind of uh, assume a few things there. But it sure seems like Paul is addressing some issues. That they had, and so Paul the last few chapters has been talking about um, idolatry starting in in, in verse uh, chapter eight paul Paul talked about food being sacrificed to idols in Corinth, there was a big temple, and they would sacrifice to the idols, and then if you didn't partake in the food that was sacrificed to them, you were kind of shunned from culture or pushed aside and so it was a huge issue for the corinthians and so Paul, in the last several chapters, has been dealing with this idea of christian liberty Christian freedom or, or the cool theological word if you want to confuse the Methodists is antinomianism there you go it just means this this, this pushing off to this freedom right uh, this pushing freedom to the far end that God's forgiving that God's graceful so I can do whatever I want and God's going to forgive me that's antinomianism and we'll talk about that or the other side of that is is legalism which is holding to the law strictly and firmly that you have to do all of these things that I'm better at doing these things than you are That's that's legalism and so Paul's been toying the line with those two ideas, pressing us forward. And in this passage, he's going to continue to do so. So let's start in, in uh, chapter 10, verse 14. We'll read all the way through it, pray, and then we'll, we'll come back and go verse by verse. So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I'm speaking at, to, as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I am saying. The cup of blessing that we bless is not sharing in the blood of Christ, The bread that we break, is it not sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many, are one body, since all of us share the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? What I am saying then, that the food to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything, no. But I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or are we provoking God to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for today, and I thank you for this text of Scripture that we have that we can walk through idolatry, that we can walk through what it is and what it isn't, God, and we can see, God, that the Lord's Supper plays into this. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament plays into this. God, that you have one story that you've written for us, one book revealing yourself to us to help us know you better. God, I pray as we walk through this passage and we see all of the things that you have here, that you would speak to our hearts. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Convict us where we need conviction. Help us to grow in you and grow in your gospel this morning, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's start back at verse 14. So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I am speaking to, as to sensible people. Judge for yourself what I am saying. So, so Paul, in this very letter, has used the idea of fleeing from things before. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul says this, Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside of the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. So Paul is coming at something important for this people, for the Corinthians, with this idea of flee, and then he names these kind of sins that they're struggling with. So, so what Paul is saying when he says flee is, is run, get away. Don't stay stagnant. Don't sit where you're at. If you encounter sexual immorality, flee, run, get away. If you come across idolatry, flee, run, get away. Don't just stand there. Don't just sit. Don't just wait. And certainly don't coddle it. It's a serious sin that needs to be repented of and it needs to be fled of. In Galatians, Paul has this list of sins uh, that he says. I want to read it to you so you can see what other sins Paul relates with idolatry. This is Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, fractions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I am warning you about these things as I warned you before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So not a good list to be involved with. Look at Revelation chapter twenty one, verse eight. But the cowards, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, they will share their share will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Revelation twenty two five. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehoods. What I want you to see is that Paul is taking idolatry very seriously because God takes idolatry very seriously. It's not a sin that we toy with. It's not a sin that we keep alongside as a pet. It's not a sin that we coddle and that we comfort and then we pretend like it's not okay. It's a sin that we flee from, that we run from. And it makes me laugh that Paul says he writes this to sensible people. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26, Paul describes this same church as this. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful, not many of a noble birth. Instead, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. So Paul is saying, I'm writing to you sensible people, but before then he's like, y'all are not very smart. And you weren't born to the right families, and you're not very powerful within your community, and God has orchestrated it to be that way. That he wants the foolish to shame the wise because the fool who believes in Christ is wiser than the wisest man who does not. He wants the insignificant and the despised of the world. It's viewed as nothing because if God can take nothing and make us into his children, how much more glory does the father get? So Paul says he's writing to sensible people. or as I think we should translate it, you unwise knuckle-draggers, listen. God saved you so that there's nothing in you that you can boast in. There's nothing about you that earns your way to God. There's nothing in you that God looks at and says, I have to have that. God needs nothing. Not you and not me. So why would Paul look at these people and say, I'm writing to you sensible people. He's talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He's saying that if you're a believer who is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, then you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that he lives inside of you, and that he makes you sensible, that you can understand God's word, because the Holy Spirit's the author of the Bible. And so this is the question Paul is, is wrestling with. He says, if you're a true believer, if you follow after Jesus, if you've been saved by Christ, then listen to these things that Paul is saying. He's not talking to the legalists who are unbelievers. Who think that the law saves us. The law doesn't save. Who think that their works save. The works don't save. You and I cannot save ourselves. The gospel is not do better or be better or get your act together, get your life right. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is you're not enough. But Jesus is enough on your behalf. So follow in Jesus. There's freedom. But this freedom that God gives us comes with warnings and comes with cautions. I like to think of it as a road. A road is something you drive your vehicle on. Everybody good? I could not, listen, I planned these sermons out years in advance, so I did not know it was going to rain today. But on the side of the road, maybe you know, there's these big dips. They're called ditches. And ditches are made so that when it rains, the one time of year it does here, the water flows in the ditch. It doesn't flow in the road. I know. It's crazy. Most of the ditches around us are just tall weeds that we kind of, avoid so when we come to christian freedom when we come to a text like this there's two ditches we have to avoid the goal is to drive on the road not to swerve off into the side of legalism and not to swerve off into the other side which is like i said earlier antinomianism Antinomianism is this. It's it's this idea that there is freedom in Christ, that God is all loving, that God is all caring, that God is all gracious, that God is all merciful, therefore I can do what I want, and God is obligated to forgive me no matter what I do. That's not the gospel either. The gospel is not here's my get out of hell free card. I walked the aisle in nineteen ninety five at a VBS, and now God is contractually obligated to be my servant to save me when I say so. That's not salvation. There is grace, and there is mercy, but there's also a new life that takes place within believers. Where we're given this freedom in God, and the freedom is to obey God. God is kind, and God is awesome. And God is going to be a burden to your life, because you and I naturally want to live lives that are opposed to God. We're going to stay away from both of those ditches. That's what Paul is kind of getting at in this section of Scripture, that there's two ditches there. That The goal is not to misuse grace, misuse the gospel. Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls it cheap grace. But the other side of the goal is not to just cling to the law so tightly and hold to it so firmly and trust that my works and my things are good enough to earn my way to God. No, no, we rest in the gospel that Jesus is the finished work of, of, for us, that he finished our salvation for us. The goal of the believer, the goal for you and I, for Christians, is to be more and more like Jesus. So the freedom that God gives us is not a freedom to engage in selfish desires, but it's a freedom to worship Christ. So what Paul is saying in this text, is he's saying flee idolatry don't worship idols but what we see in our lives and maybe what we 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 don't typically recognize because when we think of idols we think of statues we think of metal we think of gold we think of old testament pagan foreign people who didn't follow after god but what paul is telling these people and what he's telling us is flee from idols and at the heart of every idol worship is this idea that you and i actually are worshiping ourselves why is idolatry tempting because we can, if we can make a God that we can worship, then we can make the God that we think we want to worship. It's a lot easier for us to tell a God what to do than to submit our lives under a God who is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. It's a lot easier for, us to, uh, easier for us to fashion a God of our own desires that likes the things that we're good at and doesn't really care about the things that we're bad at. So for the legalists, what they'll do is they'll form these idols, and these idols look like I do 99% of the work for my salvation, and I just need Jesus to come along and give me that 1% that I need. But that's not the gospel. For antinomianism, it's, it's this idea that, that you're not worshiping. You're, you're, you're worshiping this lowercase g-god who saves, but he's not Lord. You want a weak God is what the antinomians want. They want a God who doesn't actually care about you. They want a God who, who rescues you from jail, but how the rest of however you live your life, he doesn't really care about. That's not the God of the Bible. In reality, it's worshiping yourself. Right? They want a God who doesn't control your life. He just simply wants you to be happy in and of yourself. He doesn't want to be a burden to you. He doesn't want to tell you what to do. He's just simply asking that you believe in him. It's as if he's all the other mythological characters that we make up that bring all sorts of goodies at various times of the year if we just obey. Yet James 2.19 says this. You believe that God is one good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. So what James is telling us is that belief in God is not enough. Belief must be coupled with faith. It's a faith in God, a faith that trusts in God completely and fully. Paul tells us to flee these idols, to run away from them. He doesn't tell us to sit. He doesn't tell us to coddle them. He doesn't tell us to nurture them. He doesn't tell us to treat them like pets. There there used to be a show on Animal Planet. I'm sure you guys are big Animal Planet watchers. Fatal Attractions was the show, and the show was about people who had exotic pets that the pets would then turn and kill them. I made an entire series on this. I was reading through some of the stories. You'd have people who would keep vipers and people who'd keep leopards and people who'd keep monkeys and they would treat them like they were just normal pets. Even some of them would elevate them to the status of like their their children. They would let the snakes just roam around and they would feed them by hand and play with them and then do also they'd let them in the bed with them. And what shocked me with a lot of these stories is it wasn't just like the people from Hermley who were doing this, that we would think they probably have a viper in their house. These were the so called experts. These were the people who worked at the zoos, who thought they knew the animals the most, who specialized in snakes, or specialized in, in, in chimpanzees, or specialized in, in big cats that were doing these things. And ultimately, in the end, the animal does what the animal does it bites attacks it pounces it kills its owner it kills the one providing for it it kills the one who who bonded with it it kills the one who loved it and who cared for it and who nurtured it and who cherished it and who was an expert in all things about that animal it turned around and it bit the hand that fed it and that's exactly what idols do in reality that's what sin does Sin is sin, idols are idols, and sin is going to do what sin is going to do, and idols are going to do what idols are going to do. You can coddle them, you can feed them, you can care for them, you can cherish them, you can support them, you can treat them like pets, but at the end of the day, it will bite you and it will kill you. Our sin is not meant to be coddled, that's what the gospel tells us. It's meant to be fled from, to run away from, to be get gone to be destroyed because idols because sin is not with christ you cannot be an idol worshiper and a worshiper of christ that's what paul tells us in verse 16 The cup of blessing that we bless is not a shared. uh, Is it not sharing in the blood of Christ and the bread that we break? Is it not sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body. And since all of us share the one bread, consider the people of Israel. Do not those participate who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? So so the gospel, the Lord's Supper, is what Paul's talking about here, right? Every time we take the Lord's Supper, I read from 1 Corinthians 11. We're in 1 Corinthians 10, so Paul is is tweaking it and going it back this way because you have the Lord's Supper that he's comparing to these offerings, these idol worship that the people are doing in Corinth. And so for the Lord's Supper, which is what Paul's talking about, there's a lot of things we misunderstand when it comes to this. It's the gospel made visible gospel made edible so we have two ordinances we have baptism which is like a front door into the church it's saying to the world i am now a christian i am on team jesus i'm not on team world i'm a follower for our church that's ultimately how you join the church whether that's i baptize you or accept your letter from another church or your word saying i was baptized in another church one time that's how many times you're baptized the lord's supper is what you do once you get into the family so you come in the front door and then with the lord's supper what do we do we eat Right. God has put this rhythm within our life that we eat regularly. You're Baptist. This should be getting an amen. There's something special about eating meals with people. So the blood represents the sacrifice of Jesus symbolized in the juice. The flesh represents the perfect and sinless life of Jesus symbolized in the bread. Imagine with me at the last supper, right, the the, the first lord's supper the last passover when jesus is in the upper room with the disciples how many loaves of bread do you think jesus had did he order crackers from lifeway no it was one bread there's unity there this is where our our version of the lord's supper that we do fails and we have to keep emphasizing this initially it was one loaf of bread that jesus would take and he would break And then you take pieces off that loaf of bread. So it's unity, one bread, one body, one church. It's unity. So that if each of us, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, when we partake in the Lord's Supper, we do it personally, but we also do it corporately together. That when we take the Lord's Supper, the people who take it next to you are also saved by the same God who saved you. So that when you gain a Savior, you gain brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. That we walk through life together and that we come from all sorts of different backgrounds and all sorts of different upbringing and there's different ages amongst us and there's all sorts of things that we can be divided by and all sorts of things that can press us apart. But when we believe in Jesus Christ, he pulls us together and he unites us. Now there's also things that can unite us that are secondary that are also things we have to walk away from sometimes. We don't take the Lord's Supper because we all believe the same thing about, about secondary things, right? We don't all root for the cowboys. That's why we take the Lord's Supper together. doesn't do us any good. We don't take the Lord's Supper together because we all have similar personalities. We don't take the Lord's Supper together because we all are geographically located in the same place. We take the Lord's Supper together because we're believers in Jesus Christ, period, the end. One body. Maybe it's helpful for us to look at at, at the Roman Catholic view of the Lord's Supper, which is far different than what we believe. I'm throwing you some names to to trick some of the people who, who don't know right. So I'm going to give you some theology theological words. The Catholics believe in what's called transubstantiation. Long word. Uh, what it means is the Catholics, when you take the Lord's Supper, believe that it's the literal body and the literal blood of Christ. That there's this substance, transubstance, substantiation is changed into the body and the blood of Christ when we take the Lord's Supper. So... For example, I'm not saying it happened this morning, but let's say one of my kids knocked my wife's juice on her dress when she was taking the Lord's Supper today. Definitely happened, but it's okay. For the Catholics, this is an issue because that's the literal blood of Christ. So there's a season, part of the Reformation in 1517, which took place on October 31st. Uh coming up, 1517 is when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to Castle Church in Wittenberg. Part of the argument that he had was the Catholics would take the, the wine, the juice, and they'd say, you can't partake in the blood of Christ. You can do the bread, because if you drop a piece of bread, you can pick it up and eat it. But if you drop the wine, you can't get that back. And the reason you have to take the Lord's Supper is because when you're retaking the Lord's Supper, you're re- Jesus is re-sacrificing himself each time why so you have to go to mass you have to be at the church because you and i would sin throughout the week so we would have to go to re-sacrifice for jesus to re-earn those things to re-get our salvation but that's not the gospel hebrews chapter 9 verse 25 through 28 says this he did he did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world, but now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as is it appointed for a people to die once and after this judgment, so also Christ, having offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sins, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Once and for all, that's the sacrifice of Jesus. We don't re-sacrifice Jesus every time we take the Lord's Supper. For us, it's symbolic in the way we understand it. That we look at the bread and we look at the juice and we understand it's bread and it's juice. But it reminds us of the body of Christ, that he lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. It reminds us of the death of Christ, that he died the death that we deserve, that he ushers in a new covenant for you and I as believers in Jesus. So we have baptism, that's entrance into the church family, and the Lord's Supper, this meal that the family eats together often to remind us of the gospel. So what it means is, is our temptation with the Lord's Supper is we tend to not think about it enough and not care about it enough. We don't tend to overthink about it. the Lord's Supper is far more than just stemming the hunger pains away while we smell the soups from the potluck in the fellowship hall. It's reminding us that we're not legalists. That it's not our work that saved us. It's reminding us that we're not antinomian and there is a judgment that takes place that God is just and God does take care of our sins and he does take care of our sins not by sweeping them under the rug but by sacrificing himself Jesus on the cross. And it reminds us that we're not alone. That's one of the great schemes of the devil. is to make you feel like you're alone in your beliefs and alone in your life. You're not. The Lord's Supper reminds you, it reminds me that in the midst of all of our struggles, in the midst of all of our trials, that God has given you brothers and sisters in Christ to walk through those things with you. So we weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. There's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. You will not find in the New Testament one person who doesn't plug into a church and be involved, which you will find are churches that God has planted throughout the world. Remember, this is 1 Corinthians, written to the church at Corinth. So all of the yous are y'alls. So when y'all take the Lord's Supper, There's unity here. There's one bread we need to do it. One body, one savior, one Lord, one faith, one Christ, one baptism, one God, one people in God, unity. And then Paul draws us back to Israel. This, this example of the Israelites, like he did in, in chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. So, so let's think about the sacrifices that the Israelites would make to God. Does God get hungry? No. Does God get thirsty? No. God does not have a need that needs to be fulfilled. So Israel, when they sacrifice to God, they're not sacrificing to God because God's going, I'm a little bit hungry, I really could use some of your food. They don't sacrifice to God, so God goes, I'm a little bit thirsty, I could use some of the, the water that you have. They don't sacrifice to God because God needs anything. Instead, God does not need. The sacrifices were meant to teach us. They teach us that God is worthy of our best, and that if we give God our best, he takes care of it. That we sacrifice what we have, that we give up things that matter to us. It wasn't the uh, the blemished lamb that was sacrificed, it was the unblemished one. It teaches us that God is ultimately in control, and that God cares about us, though he doesn't need us. God loves us in a way that is incomprehensible. I don't understand it. He doesn't need us, but he loves us before we loved him. He doesn't need us, but he cared for us before we cared about him. He doesn't need us, but he lavishes his grace and he lavishes his mercy on us in ways that make us step back in astonishment. We don't deserve God's grace. We don't deserve God's mercy, yet he freely gives it to us. And what this is meant to do for you and I is to cause us to worship God to follow after him completely and fully, not to try to earn our way to heaven like legalists, and not to try to take this grace and this mercy and live our own life the way that we want to, like an antinomian would. This is why Paul is addressing the trap of idols. Because idols are really us worshiping ourselves. All sin is this. But because of Jesus, because of the gospel, because Jesus died in my place, because Jesus did the work that I could not do, that you could not do, because Jesus died the death that I deserve, that you deserve, because of Jesus, we're free to worship God and not have to worship ourselves. We can live a life that's selfless. We don't have to be focused about me, myself, and I. That We can care about others at our own expense, because at the end of the day, the Lord owns us, not us. We don't look internally for a Savior. We look to the cross. We don't coddle those behaviors. We don't coddle those attitudes. We don't coddle the personalities, the desires, the wants, the wishes, the needs that we claim to have. We reject the self and we follow after Jesus. That's what the gospel's about. We worship God alone, not our idols. And the Lord's Supper reminds us that we're a body of believers. Unified not because we have similar personalities, not because we have similar hobbies, not because we're geographically located in the same place, not because we root for the same sports teams. We're united because we have been saved by the same Savior. We don't; God doesn't need our sacrifices. But he demands them because it's what's best for you and I. It reminds us that, that that our things, our possessions, our family, our control, whatever it is that we must sacrifice is not our identity. That Christ is. Look at verse 19. What am I saying then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be a participant with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and drink the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. So, so let's start at the first part and then we'll work our way to all the demon talk towards the end. Idols at the end of the day Paul says are absolutely nothing job thirty one twenty four through twenty eight says this, if I placed my confidence in gold or called it fine gold, my trust, if I have rejected uh, if I have rejoiced because of my wealth is greater because my own hand has acquired so much if I have gazed at the sun when I was it was shining and the moon when it was moving in splendor, so that my heart would secretly entice them, I threw a kiss them what this would have been. Uh, an inequity deserving punishment for I would have denied God above what Job is saying is in the midst of his punishment in the midst not his punishment in the midst of his persecution in the midst of his suffering if he had looked to anything besides God for peace anything besides God for comfort anything besides God for his hope in the midst of those things it would have been a sin and he would have deserved punishment what Paul's telling us is that the idols are powerless they're not real they're fake I'm reminded of one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament, Elijah on Mount Carmel. Or Caramel, depending on. You have all these prophets of Baal that are in a contest with Elijah. Who's going to light the fire? Is it the God of Elijah or is it the God of Baal? And so uh, the prophets of Baal, all hundreds of them are dancing around and they're chanting and they're pleading and they're screaming and they're yelling, trying to evoke Baal, this idol, this false god, to light this fire for them. And my favorite part of the story is Elijah talks trash. He looks at the people and he goes, maybe your God's asleep. Maybe if you yell a little bit louder, you'll you'll wake him up, you'll rouse him. The best trash talking goes. maybe your God's in the bathroom and he just needs a minute. Elijah's not doing that because he believes there's a real idol, a real God that's taking place there. He knows that Baal is an object, something that's been created. And so when it's Elijah's turn, he waters down the altar. Look, I don't, I'm not good with like rain and stuff. I don't understand it very much, but I know that wood that's been soaked in water doesn't light very well. So Elijah's like, not only am I going to have my God light the fire, but I'm going to make it as hard as possible so you know that my God's real, that it's not an accident. He prays to God and God lights the altar on fire because God is real and idols are nothing. So for Corinth, this was an important question because they had a temple that was filled with idols. And people would go, and they would sacrifice to these idols, and they would invite them to to come and eat with them. And so if the idols are not real, then what's the big deal if you go eat this food? If they're not real, then it's just food that's being sacrificed. You might as well go get a free meal out of it, right? And, And in fact, earlier in the letter, Paul tells them you don't have to worry about tracing back every single piece of food that you've eaten to see if it was offered to an idol or not, because there's freedom in Jesus Christ. But if you know that it's been offered to an idol, you should refrain. Well, why? If idols aren't real, why do we have to refrain? If they're not that big of a deal, then why do we not need to eat it? And so Paul pulls back the curtain a little bit for us to see. He says idols are not real. They're created things. But Satan and demons are real. And that they will use false religion, that they will use false idols to do as much damage as they can. So let me, behind every false religion is what Paul's telling us. There stands demonic activity. There stands demons. I know it's Halloween coming up. We've seen movies. I can't spin my head around or I would do it that portray demonic activity. We'll have people dress up in costumes in ways that's meant to scare us. That's meant to, It can't scare us too much, right? If you scare scares too much, we won't go buy the tickets to the movie. So there's this kind of fine line on how much you can and can't scare us. But biblically, that's not what demonic activity looks like. Satan and demons are not all powerful. They're limited. They're not all knowing like God is. They're not able to be everywhere. They're not equal to God. They rebelled against God. But even in that rebellion, they can only rebel against God as far as God lets them go. Go read the story of Job to see how much of a leash uh, Satan is on. He has to go to God. God, can I please tempt Job? I believe mostly that the demonic activity that we see now is more sleight of hand than anything else. What we see now are the movies and stuff that takes place now that's meant to draw our attention over here. It's meant to draw our attention to these big kind of ideas, the big movies, the big costumes, kind of the big things that take our attention while at the exact same time there's this sleight of hand taking place. So if we're focused here, then there's all of these temptations and things that can slide under our radar on this side. We'll monitor those movies. We won't go to those movies, but at the same time, we'll start singing the songs that Disney princesses sing, which is, hey, you're great in and of yourself, which is demonic activity. At the end of the day, Satan and his minions, Satan and the demons, don't care how they get you away from God. All they care about is getting us away from the Lord. So if we're focused on these things, but then we subtly let this deception take place, which is how Satan's described, then they win. We'll do this because we'll go, well, I'm not a murderer. I'm not that bad of a person, right? The little white lies I tell are, are, are not good. I shouldn't tell them, but I'm not murdering people, so I'm not the worst that I could possibly be. Every false religion teaches that you must earn your way to God or that you don't have to do anything to be saved that you're not that bad or that you're capable of doing it yourself. For Islam, it says uh, you do what God says or you'll be punished. For Mormonism, it says you do what God says so that you can get all of the rewards of life. You can become your own God if you do it right. Universalism says don't even worry about it. You're good enough yourself now. Just go live a good life. But the gospel says none of that is true. demonic activity does the same thing that your and I sinful nature does it takes our image of God and it tries to minimize it and it takes our image of ourself our idea of who we are and tries to maximize it you cannot be a Christian and not trust in God completely and fully so Satan and the demons would be content with you trusting Jesus for 99% of your salvation as long as there's 1% that you don't trust him for that's good enough for them that's the struggle. That's the sinful nature that we fight against. That's the demonic activity that we take place with. That's the idols that are here. That's what sin does. That's what idolatry does. It minimizes God and it maximizes you and I. Look at verse 23, 22. sorry. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Paul sees through all of it. Idolatry takes many shapes and it takes many forms, and it's just as prominent now as it was 3,000, 4,000 years ago, and it will be just as prominent until Jesus Christ comes back because it's deceptive. Idolatry can be thinking of God as something that He is not, idolatry can be worshiping God in a way that God forbids. We talked last week about the, the golden calf that shows up in the fire. Do you know what the, the God that they were trying to worship with the golden calf? Yahweh. But God said, you're not going to make an image of me. You're not going to make an idol of me. So they're worshiping God in a way that God said, don't do. That's a sin. That's idolatry. Worshiping God as an image. Worshiping angels or demons. Worshiping deceased people. Some, being supremely loyal to something other than God. Coveting. Having an inordinate amount of desire or lust that's taking place, all of that is idolatry that captures our soul. And what Paul reminds us is that God is jealous. He's not jealous like you and I are. He's not jealous like you guys are jealous of me that I got a box of oatmeal cream pies this morning and I am not sharing it, never. Exodus 34, 14 says, Because the Lord is jealous for his reputation, you are to never bow down to another God. He is a jealous God. What it means is God is the only one who is worthy of worship. God is the only one who is worthy of praise. There is no one that is stronger than God. There is no one that loves a more pure love than God does. God is the only one. He's jealous not because he's insecure about himself. He's jealous because what matters for you and I is to glorify God because that's the what we were created to do. That's why we're most fulfilled. That's when we're most complete is when we glorify God. Romans eight thirty-eight through 39 says, For I am persuaded that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor depths nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What Paul is begging us to do, what Paul is trying to expose for us to do is to see that there are these idols. We flee from these idols because you and I were created for something different, for something better. We were, Idols don't give you peace. Idols don't give you comfort. Idols don't give you hope. What they end up doing is turning around and biting and destroying and killing you. It's Jesus who offers peace. It's Jesus who offers hope. It's Jesus who offers eternal life, not the idols. So, what you and I need in our hearts and in our souls is to flee from those things. We can't be like the owner of a rattlesnake who coddles it, who feeds it, who plays with it, who teaches it all sorts of tricks. But at the end of the day, the rattlesnake has every intention of killing the hand who feeds it. Jesus says in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, when Jesus heard this, he told them, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners. The gospel is not about you and I and our self-esteem. The gospel is not about you and I feeling comfortable in and of ourselves. The gospel is about exposing the lies, exposing the idols, and offering us the truth, the hope, the truth, the hope that if we believe in Jesus Christ and we trust in him with our faith that he will save us. And so then we worship God and we worship God alone. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for today. God, I thank you that there is no one else that is worthy of worship. That there's no one else who is worthy of praise. That there's no one else who can save us. God, you are the only one who can save. And you've made a way for us to be saved through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God, that we don't live the life that we're supposed to live, that we're marred with sin, that we're marred with suffering, that there's all sorts of things in our path and in our way, starting with our sinful nature. God, we cannot be good enough. We cannot live a life worthy of your righteousness. But you can, God. And you did. You don't call us to go be better. You don't call us to get our acts together. What you call us to do is to put our faith in you, Jesus, and then to live a life that glorifies and honors you and you alone. I pray that we would do that today. That for believers who are here, you would remind us of your gospel. You would remind us of how you saved us. And that we would be encouraged. God, for unbelievers, I pray that you would expose the idols of the heart. That they would repent of those idols. That they would flee from them. And God, they would flee right into your open arms. That you would save them. Gotta thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.